Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> it's good to see you all tonight. And we're in Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. I know we, we did like three chapters while you were gone, Casey. I'm in 23. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matthew chapter 26. And we'll read verses 1 to 16 tonight. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began to look for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your most holy word that you've given to us. And Lord, we thank you that uh, you have sent your only son into the world, Lord, that we might live through him uh, and that he has come to die on the cross, Lord, for our sins and to be raised for our justification. And Lord, as we now enter into these passages, Lord, recounting to us the very uh, crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, Lord, may we not have any doubt but rather have great confidence, Lord, in the veracity, Lord, the truthfulness of these accounts. Lord, knowing that uh, those eyewitnesses were there who are testifying to these things, and we know that their testimony is true, and we know that they cannot lie, seeing that they were led by the Holy Spirit to write these things down for our benefit. So, Lord, as we study and we see these things, may we be reminded, Lord, of our own sin, and, Lord, how it was our sin that uh, put him there uh, on the tree, uh, and that he died because of what we had done, uh, pierced for our transgressions. So, Lord, teach us this, and Lord, as we meditate and contemplate these things today, we pray that you would lead us and guide us into all truth, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, the rest of the book of Matthew is taken up with the account of those events leading up to the death and the resurrection of Christ. Everything has been building uh, to this point, and this is the uh, final act or the seminal act in the life of Christ. He was born so that he might come and offer his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us, so that he might die on the cross for our sins and be raised for our justification. 26 to 28 is the accounting of the events in the days, in the immediate days uh, preceding his death, and then all that occurred in his crucifixion, his arrest. 
his burial, then his resurrection, and then a few events after his resurrection uh, until his ascension. Okay, so that is what is remaining. We've just finished a very long teaching narrative in chapters 23, 24, and 25 uh, that was devoted to uh, some of his final messages or public teachings uh, that he gave concerning the scribes and the Pharisees, concerning the end times, and then the need for us to be prepared for the second coming of Christ and the upcoming day of judgment. And now it will pick up with the narrative and go ahead and finish out uh, his course, right? His course, his life, his death, his resurrection. So we'll pick up here in chapter 26, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion here. When he had finished all these words, this is, again, this very large teaching section uh, that he has just uh, dealt with. Right. Uh, That began with the denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. That led to uh, them leaving the temple, the disciples pointing out the marvelous buildings and these giant stones, which led to Jesus uh, speaking about the impending doom of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and then the second coming. And then that transitioned into chapter 25, which is these parables of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, the need for us to be ready for the second coming of Christ. And then he finished at the end of chapter 25 with the day of judgment and how he will say separate the sheep and the goats. All this to prepare us for the coming day of judgment. So he has faithfully discharged his duty as the teacher of the people of God. He is the prophet. He is the apostle of God who has come and revealed God to us. That is why it says in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the prophet or the apostle, the one that was uniquely sent by God to reveal God to us and to teach us the very will of God. And now he has finished all of his words. He's finished his teaching ministry, which was the greater part of his ministry. Not that he won't uh, discourse and teach his disciples more. Uh, He will do that. But in terms of public ministry, this has uh, come to an end at the end of chapter 25. And now it is just a few days before his arrest and his death. So here he's finished this. And now he says to his disciples that after two days, the Passover is coming. The Passover, this last Passover that Jesus partook of with his disciples took place on Thursday, right? Took place on a Thursday. So this would be then Tuesday, the Tuesday before the Thursday where he partook of the last supper or the Passover with his disciples there in the upper room. This is when he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then immediately after leaving there, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. That is when he is betrayed. And then he's handed over and arrested. The trials begin to take place during the middle of the night on Friday, not Thursday night, but would be for us early Friday morning. And then by nine o'clock in the morning, he's hanging on the cross. Okay. So all of those events take place there. This is happening two days before these events. So the Tuesday preceding the Thursday, where would be the Passover of Christ, where he would go and have that final Passover with his disciples. Now the Passover was one of the most important feasts or festivals for the Jewish people, right? It was really the key or the the big one uh, in terms of their uh, calendar of worship 
and when they were remembering what God did for them in delivering them from Egypt, but also it was a symbol, a type, a shadow of the coming of Christ, of the Paschal Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And the Passover was determined according to the Jewish calendar, which was based upon a lunar calendar, right? They followed a moon cycle for their calendar, and this was the very beginning of the year for them. The first month was the month in which the Passover took place. This was the beginning of the year for them in the Jewish uh, calendar, and it corresponds with us so sometime in March and April, March or April, because we go by a Roman calendar or a solar calendar that is based upon uh, the way the sun moves. And so there is not an exact parallel. This is why the Passover would change to various days of the week. It could fall on a Sunday, a Monday. It could fall on any of the days of the week. And this is what it did. In this year, it falls upon a Thursday, right? It falls on a Thursday, the year that our Lord was crucified. And then this is why for us with Easter, there is a, uh, it, it moves around from time to time because it's being based upon the relationship, the proximity to the Passover, but then just in the Sunday that is in close proximity to those things. And actually, there was a council uh, that determined this uh, in terms of the church and the, the calendar of the church. When should the church celebrate the resurrection or celebrate Easter? Uh, and this was one of the early church controversies that took place and was settled at the Council of Nicaea. So at the Council of Nicaea, they actually dealt with this issue of when should we celebrate Easter? Should we do it? in proximity to the Passover so that it would fall on various days of the week? Or should we do it on the Sunday that is in the closest proximity to the Passover? And what they determined was do it on Sunday. And that's why we always celebrate Easter on a Sunday. It doesn't fall on various days of the weeks. So this is why uh, they determined that. Now here, that Jesus's death, his crucifixion corresponds to the Passover is not accidental. This is determined by God from before the foundation of the world. And all of these things were put into place and everything was brought about by the counsel and will of God so that his death would correspond with this festival, this feast of the Passover, this very pivotal, crucial event in the life of Israel. So it's not accidental, but rather it is intentional. And if we go to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, In verse 14, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, sorry, not 14. Galatians 4, 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, Right When God's perfect timing, according to His wisdom and His counsel, had come, God sent forth His Son. God did not send forth His Son as soon as Adam committed sin in the Garden of Eden. Right, He did not come and take on human flesh at that point. Now, it was predicted that the seed of the woman would come, and that seed of the woman would bruise or would crush the head of the serpent. And that is a prediction, a prophecy of the coming of Christ. But he did not come into the world at that time. It would be another 4,000 years from Adam until Christ would enter into the world 
in the fullness of time. According to God's wisdom and according to God's foreordination, this is when Christ would take on human flesh, when the Son of God would come and dwell among men, taking on human flesh and would be there with us and then would die on the cross for our sins. But in between Adam and the coming of Christ, there were many things, many things revealed through the prophets that were there to anticipate and prepare the people for the coming of Christ. And one of those things was the Passover. The Passover was given as a shadow and type of the coming of Christ. And so that his death would correspond to the Passover, again, is not accidental because Jesus is our Passover lamb. And those Passover lambs were there to teach the people to put their hope in the ultimate Passover lamb who would be the one to cover them from their sins and take all of our sins away. If we go back to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus 12 verses 1 to 51, the whole chapter is devoted to the establishment of the Passover and what it means, right? The teaching around, around it, how they are to keep it. And there was the Passover, uh, the Passover meal, but then also there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that corresponded to it. So there was this feast that lasted for seven days, a festival week, and then it began with the Passover. And then it took place throughout that week. And this was the beginning of the year for the Jewish people, right? For the, those under the Old Covenant. Exodus 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted, but rather roasted with fire, both its heads, its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on the night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." 
On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another a holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance." In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your house. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings, and you shall not eat, and you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood of the lintel and of the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, What does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh arose at midnight, he and all of his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Go and worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said. Go and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes of, on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed to Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be observed for the Lord. For having brought them out of the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house, and you are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. 
All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the natives as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. On that same day the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. So here then is the establishment of this Passover, this first Passover, uh, and how it was brought about by the Lord, right? The Lord is the one who established it, right? He is the one who gave it to them. Moses didn't invent it. Aaron didn't invent it. The people didn't invent it and say this would be a really uh, good thing for us to do. God is the one who gave that to them. He's the one that gave to them the requirements, the prescriptions associated with this Passover meal, and then also the Feast of Unleavened Bread that accompanied it, right? That it would take place on the 14th day of the month until the 21st day of the month. And it was to be a memorial to them, both of their deliverance from Egypt, but also of what that symbolized, what it typified, which is the ultimate deliverance from the power of sin that would be accomplished through Christ our Passover Lamb. And this is why in John chapter 1 verse 29... And in other places in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. Or in one place, He's even referred to as our Passover Lamb. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day He saw Jesus coming to Him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here, when John the Baptist sees Christ, he declares that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. First Corinthians 5, 6 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here, the apostle is using this imagery from the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread that accompanied it, right? To describe what the church is supposed to be like and the deficiencies that are taking place here in the church in Corinth. Because there is this man who is among them who has his father's wife, right? And he's committing immorality of such a degree that even the Gentiles do not do. Well, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to teach the people to not practice sin, right? That's what needs to be leavened out of us. That's what needs to be removed. And instead of sin, there should be sincerity and truth. The unleavened bread that they ate was to represent sincerity and truth. And the leavened bread or the leaven was a representation of sin and the need to be cleansed of our sin and to have the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And how is that brought about? Well, by Christ, our Passover lamb, 
who is sacrificed for us. Just as they killed the lambs, right, and put the blood over the doorpost and the lintel, and so the destroyer did not come and kill their firstborn because their homes were covered by this blood. So when Christ's blood covers us, then God will not destroy us on the day of judgment, but will pass over us and we will enter into the kingdom of God. But those who are not covered by the blood of Christ, just as the Egyptians, their homes will be struck and they will die in their sins and be cast into the lake of fire. Also, this lamb was, or the goat, it could be one or the other, was a year old, a male that was unblemished, representing Christ. A year old lamb or male is in its strength, in its prime. So Christ also was in his strength or in his prime when he was about 30 to 33 years of age, whenever he was offered up in the prime of life, also unblemished in that Christ had no sin. And then he was killed. Not a bone of his was broken. That did not happen just as they were not to break their bones. And then they were to roast it in fire, symbolizing that Christ underwent the eternal punishment of hell fire. This is what we deserve because of our sin. And this is what Christ took for himself. This is what happened to him as our Passover lamb. He endured the wrath of God, which if it comes upon a person is the eternal fires of hell. So Christ was roasted in that sense on the cross where he died and the lamb was completely consumed and burned up. That in that Christ was able to consume and completely satisfy and quench the very wrath of God. And in these ways, there is this symbolism in what Christ has done for us and what was taking place there in the Passover. Also in Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, and then chapter 13, verse 8. Here, Jesus, in even His glorified state, is still referred to as a lamb. Revelation 5, verse 6 says, And I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations, and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here, when he looks there between the throne and the elders, he sees a lamb standing as if slain. And this is the same lamb that John spoke of in John 1, 21, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then Revelation 13, 13 verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. So there he is the lamb that has been slain. This is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I do want to read a short section from the, this is a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, okay, which we're going through the Heidelberg Catechism uh, in our men's Bible study. And in this commentary written by the uh, architect of that uh, catechism, he has a section on what was the design of the Passover? What was the purpose of the Passover? And it's 
I want to read it briefly to you. <clears throat> Just to show that this idea or concept that Christ is the Passover lamb and that that was indicated to the people when it was instituted is not far-fetched or loony or crazy or out, of this, or out of this world, but that this is the common historic reformed interpretation of these shadows and types in the Old Testament, that they were pictures that typified some aspect of the person and work of Christ, okay? What is the design of the Passover? He says, there are five ends in the 12th chapter of Exodus on account of which the Passover was instituted. Number one, that the blood of the lamb sprinkled upon the doorpost might be a sign of the angel passing over them and of the preservation of the firstborn. Exodus 12, 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This end after the first performance of the rite and the passing over of the angel ceases, although the analogy of it remains forever. For God formerly spared and now spares the faithful for the sake of the blood of Christ, by which we mean that he remits their sins as is taught in the next object specified. Number two, that it might be a type of the sacrifice of the Messiah yet to be offered, or that it might be a sign of the deliverance which would be wrought out by Christ and so be a sign of God's grace to the church. This was the chief end of the yearly Passover. This is proven by the following arguments. John 19, 36, a bone of him shall not be broken. This type, John declares, was fulfilled when Christ's bones were not broken upon the cross. Therefore, the lamb was a type of Christ and of his sacrifice. Again, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. The paschal lamb, therefore, signified Christ, and the sacrifice of it signified the sacrificing of Christ. Again, the church understood the significance of other sacrifices, that they were types of the sacrifice of the Messiah. For the ancient fathers were not so destitute of reason as to seek the remission of sins by the blood of bulls. Much more, therefore, did they by faith behold in the paschal lamb the Messiah and his sacrifice." Lastly, John calls Christ the Lamb of God and the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world because he was adumbrated by that Lamb which was slain at the Passover. So there he says this is the chief end of it. Now he goes on to say it's also a memorial of what God did for them in bringing them out of Egypt. It is also a bond for them to come together to publicly worship God. And it is a sacrament in the old covenant for the people to observe and to be reminded of these things. But the chief end of it, he says, was to signify Jesus Christ and what he would do. And that this was taught in these shadows to the people under the old covenant. That the ancient fathers, meaning Everyone from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all those, David who lived after him, Isaiah, Jeremiah, that they were not so ignorant as to think the blood of bulls and goats could take away their sins. But they understood that these sacrifices were there to prepare them and to point them to the ultimate sacrifice for sins, the ultimate Passover lamb, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this we've been dealing with and will continue to deal with in the book of Hebrews. 
much of Hebrews is dedicated to this very purpose, right? Showing that the old covenant established under Moses was not an end in itself, but it was there temporarily until the fullness of time would come, until Christ would appear and that he is the one that we should put our hope in. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Okay, then back to verse 2. Matthew 26, verse 2. He says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Here, the Son of Man. The Son of Man being this favorite designation that Jesus uses for Himself. And it refers us back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where there the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, comes and appears before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, gives to Him an eternal kingdom. And this passage from Daniel 7, 13 to 14 was, even amongst the unbelieving Jews, commonly understood and interpreted as referring to the Messiah, that this is Messiah who is being spoken of in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And it shows both his humanity and his deity, his deity in that he comes before the ancient of days. And what man could dare come before the Ancient of Days? Who could stand in His presence like this? But He comes with boldness before the Ancient of Days, and He is Himself equal. He has the same glory, the same honor as the Ancient of Days. But also, He is likened unto a Son of Man. Right? He has a human body like we do. And we know this from Hebrews chapter 2, that since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Right? He had to take on flesh and blood as well. So it is the Son of Man. It is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, in this one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what will happen to Him? He's going to be delivered over, handed over for crucifixion. He will be crucified on the cross. Now here, He's handed over and He is crucified. And this is significant, right? Because who are the ones who handed him over? The Jews. The Romans did not have a problem with Jesus. They didn't care about these squabbles going on amongst the Jewish people, these religious fights and arguments that they were having. All the Romans cared about in terms of their providences was taxes, peace, harmony, everything going smoothly, and the money flow would keep coming in, right? That's all that they care about. They don't care what the Jews are doing in terms of their worship, the internal theological debates that they have, so long as it doesn't lead to riots, to a ruckus, to some upheaval in the kingdom where they have to then dispatch military to come and deal with these types of things. However, the Jews who wanted to crucify Christ, or they wanted to be the ones that put Him to death, they did not have the authority to do so. Because at this point in their history, they are under the rule of the Romans. And they no longer have that civil authority to execute because it belongs to the Romans. This is why they had to hand him over to the Romans. And then it was the Romans under Pilate who actually gave the order for him to be crucified and were the ones who actually brought it about. So this betrayal, this death in the crucifixion of Christ was instigated by the blot, plot of the Jews and then it was carried about by the Romans. And this is significant because in these two people you have represented the entire world of men, both Jews and Gentiles coming together with common hatred for the Son of God, right? To put to death 
the king of glory, and it is an emblem of what this present world is like under sin. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or if you are a Gentile. So long as the person's heart is unregenerate, they all hate God. And whenever the Son of God appears, whether Jew or Gentile, what do they all conspire and want to do to Him? They all want to kill Him and put Him to death. Handed over is the Jews, crucified is the Romans. Right? Both here represented in this. Acts chapter 4 brings this about. Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 28. Again, none of these things are accidental. Everything is perfectly orchestrated by God in order to fulfill everything that had been predicted. So that the Jews were under the subjugation of the Romans at this time was not an accident. It was all intentional so that the whole world could be represented in the crucifixion, in the rejection of Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. Roman, or Acts 4.25 says, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's divine devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Here he's quoting from Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2, why are the nations raging? Here the interpretation is the Gentiles. Why are the Gentiles raging and the peoples devising Feudal things. The peoples are referring to both Jews and Gentiles. They are the ones devising these feudal things. The kings of the earth and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, who is he talking about? 27. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The fulfillment of Psalm 2 required that this rejection of the Lord and His anointed one would be an affair brought about by both Jews and Gentiles, by the nations, right? By the peoples. And here the Romans are the representatives of the nations or the Gentiles, and the Jews are, of course, the Jews. So that you have the whole world gathering together against the Lord and against His anointed, seeking to stop Christ from becoming king. And they think that killing Him will accomplish it, but this is the very wisdom of God. These are the mysteries of God, because what they think will prevent Jesus from becoming the king is what actually brings it about, His death followed by His resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. This is because they don't have spiritual eyes and they don't have spiritual understanding. So here, there is gathered together Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, handed over by the Jews, crucified by the Romans. This is how it came about. So all of this, the timing, the conspirators, the manner, all determined by God. Also, he was crucified. He wasn't hung. He wasn't beheaded. He wasn't stoned to death. He wasn't thrown into uh, a lion's den. He wasn't thrown into a fiery furnace or burned to death. All of these are inventive ways that people have killed people over the years, right? There are many different ways that a person can be executed. 
but one of those forms of execution invented or brought about by the Romans was this form of crucifixion. And this was not accidental, right? All of this was intentional and purposeful by the will of God. And even before this form of execution had been invented, God had already predetermined that it would be this method that Jesus would die and had already put in the Old Testament certain prophecies relating to his being crucified. He was crucified. The point here being twofold. One, on the cross, a man is lifted up, right? They are lifted up and suspended between heaven and earth. And in this way, Christ was lifted up. And when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. John chapter 12, verse 32. John 12, And verse 32 says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And that death is death of crucifixion. When he is lifted up, he will draw men to himself. Meaning his death on the cross is the means by which our redemption is accomplished and by which we are drawn to God effectually by His Spirit and all of our sins are forgiven and we are adopted into the family of God. This is the manner by which He will die. And it was the Romans who preferred and used this form, this method of execution. So it's not accidental that the Romans are ruling over Israel during this time and that they are the ones who actually bring about the death of Christ. They are the ones who give the order to execute him and that he would be executed in this way through crucifixion. Also, Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 13 to 14, this crucifixion took place on a tree. And this is also significant. Galatians 3, Verses 13 to 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, right? We are under the curse of the law. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The soul who sins shall surely die. This is the curse of the law. The law requires in us from the covenant God established with Adam at creation, perfect obedience. The reward for obedience is eternal life. The curse for disobedience is eternal death, that we are under the curse of God and will be the accursed ones. This is what we read last week in Matthew 25. Those on his left, he says, depart from me, you accursed ones. Meaning you are under the curse of God because of your disobedience, because of your sin. This curse is upon you. Well, Christ redeems us from this curse by becoming a curse for us. So that instead of us having the curse on, on ourselves, and having the penalty, the punishment that is due to that curse, Christ takes it upon himself. He becomes a curse for us. And then this curse 
that he came under was signified in the manner of his death. Because God in the Old Testament attached a special curse to those who were hanged from trees. Cursed is everyone who is hanged from a tree. This type of horrible death filled with such suffering, such brutality, was an indication that this person was under the curse of God. And Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. And that curse was seen in his hanging on a tree, which was his cross. And then as a result, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles, which is the spirit of Christ. So all of these things happening are intentional. Nothing is accidental. All of it foreordained by God, brought about according to the counsel of his own will. Then verse 3. Then the chief priests and elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Here, the religious leaders, these are the ones who are gathered together in the court of the high priest, and they're the ones plotting together on how it is that they're going to bring about this dastardly deed, okay, of killing the very Son of God. The chief priest, the elders of the people, the ones who are supposed to lead the people to worship God, into the will of God, into the things of God, and yet here they are the ones who are the chief instigators of his crucifixion, of this rejection of Christ, which will ultimately end in the judgment of God coming upon them and the people of Israel, right? Because of what it is that they had done. So though they possessed the oracles of God, they were so blind and had strayed so far from the truth that in the name of God, they put to death the Son of God. They actually seek to overthrow everything that God is doing. Right, according to their, to their own perceptions. Now, according to God's will, they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. But according to their own plans and motives and what is going on in their mind, they're seeking to thwart God. They are fulfilling Psalm 2. They're raging against Christ and they're raging against the Lord saying, let, let us burst their bonds, right? We don't want him as our king. We do not want him ruling and reigning over us. John 16, verse 2, predicts that this will happen. Not only did it happen to Christ, but it'll even happen to us as well. John chapter 16, verse 2, that it is possible for someone to have such a corruption in their mind concerning God and concerning truth that in the name of God, they are actually opposing God. John 16, 1 and 2. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Here, he's speaking of the Jews again. They're going to throw them out of synagogues. And they're going to think that in killing the apostles, they're actually offering a service to God. This is how corrupt. And the reason they do this is because they don't know God. Right. And they don't know His Christ. How can we know the Father 
apart from the Son. It's impossible. So they have a corrupt understanding of God the Father, one that is apart from God the Son. And because of this, they put to death the Son of God. And because of this, they will put to death His apostles. But they're doing it in the name of God, right? In the, this false zeal. They have a zeal for God, it says in Romans chapter 11, but not according to what? No. Not according to knowledge, right? They're ignorant of the righteousness of God and they're seeking to establish their own. Actually, that's Romans chapter 10. So they have zeal, but they have no knowledge. And when men have zeal without knowledge, it's misguided zeal. And that zeal will lead them even to do these types of things. No doubt the chief priests, the elders of the people were very zealous for the things of God. But what they were zealous for was not truly the things of God. They were a synagogue of Satan, a temple of Satan. This is what they are doing. And these are the leaders of the people, right, who were the experts in the Bible, in the law, in these types of things. So this is not good. And it shows you how deplorable was the condition of the people. Here, they're plotting together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. They want to seize him and they want to kill him, but they want to do it secretly by stealth, okay? Because they're afraid of the people. They've already uh, indicated this earlier, that they're afraid to do anything to him because the people hold him as a prophet. And then if they do this, they're afraid that people are going to revolt against them and that there's going to be a big riot and an insurrection in the city. And then if that happens, the Romans might come and take their place away. So they're afraid of this. They don't fear God, but they fear men and they fear losing their position. That's what they're concerned about. So they determined not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. The people, when they come to these festivals, one, there is an influx of people into the city. So many people come into the city. So there's larger crowds. And also, they're worked up. There's a lot of zeal. They're thinking about these things. And there are going to be many people there who are followers of Christ, who have seen his miracles, who have seen all the various things that he has done, and who hold him as a prophet. So their intention is to take him by stealth and kill him, but not during the festival. Let's wait till after the festival. But who overrides their intention? God does. Because it's going to happen right in the middle of it, right? According to the will of God. That's what God wants to happen. He's going to override their so-called free will, right? So their free will is to kill him afterwards. But God's free will says, no, we're going to do it during the festival. And God's will always triumphs over the will of man. Right. Verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Here, during this time, he's going to Jerusalem during the days and then also going to Bethany, which is about two miles away. And this is where he's staying during the evenings, okay? And here in Bethany, he's at the home of Simon the leper. He's also at this time, uh, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are here in this place as well. But here at this point, he's at the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper being Simon, who at one point was a leper and was healed by Christ. And he's there in his home, reclining there, fellowshipping with them, being refreshed. He's, Simon is showing hospitality to Christ. This woman comes in with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. 
and she pours it on his head as he reclined at the table. This woman comes in and pours this very expensive perfume onto the head of Christ while he is there. Now she's doing it as a sign of her love and devotion for Christ and to prepare him for what she knows is about to happen, which is his death and his burial. This is why she is doing it. So her intention is out of love for Christ, love for Christ, wanting to honor him, show her love and devotion to him and prepare him for his burial. If we go over to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, there is some debate as to whether or not this is the same event or if this is a separate event, but there are a lot of similarities between this, okay? Though this, what we're reading in Matthew is taking place two days before the Passover. This is six days before the Passover, but it could be six days that he came there, but then this happens later during his stay there. So, but either way, it's, whether it's one event or two events, it both has the same purpose, the same purpose, and many similarities. John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So here we find out that, and I, I take that likely this is the same event, the same event that is taking place here. And this costly perfume, if you see, you know, your footnote, mine says it's the equivalent of 11 months wages, 11 months wages, which is a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money uh, to, to do this. And this is why she does it. She's wanting to show her love for Christ and to prepare him for the burial that is coming upon him. Well, anytime someone does something good and right in the sight of God, what do you always find? There's some critic, right? Some critic, a naysayer, always ready to complain, to fault find, to point out this or that. Okay, well, here we go. Verse 8. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why the waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price, and the money given to the poor. In John's version of this, it's Judas Iscariot who is saying this. Here, it is applied to all of the disciples. And the, again, likely solution to that is that Judas is the chief instigator. He is the one who is bringing this complaint up. And then the other disciples are joining him in in this complaint. Now, why is Judas bringing it up according to John chapter 12? Is it because he loves the poor? Who does he love? 
himself, right? He loves himself and he loves to pilfer from the money box. And his mind is 11 months wages, right? 300 denarii. We could put this in the money box and then he could go out and have a good time, right? Doing whatever he does with the money that he's stealing in this way. The other disciples, knowing that their hearts are not like Judas, they're true believers and more pure, they're probably thinking in terms of the poor. But who is leading them, instigating them to also complain and carp and fault find against this woman? Judas Iscariot, which shows us again how we must be very careful. We must be very careful who we trust, who is leading, who is doing these kinds of things, because Judas has ulterior motives. His motives are very evil and wrong, right? He's thinking of himself, but he's acting like he is very pristine in that he's concerned for the poor and love of others. And he leads these other disciples to join in in this kind of fault finding so that they are siding with a devil over a saint, right? Siding with an accuser against one who is doing a good deed in the sight of God and who is very pure in what she is doing, which is going to, you know, that's going to, it would hurt her, right? It's going to be very discouraging to her because she knows why she's coming. And yet here they are, are complaining. And it's not just some random person, some bum off the street that's complaining. These are the very disciples of Christ who are close to him, right? Who have some weight to their testimony. For, so for them to do this would be a very discouraging thing for her. So misguided zeal, misguided zeal with the 11. With Judas, it's just pure wickedness and evil, right? In him being a hypocrite and a liar. But here it causes them to uh, protest against what it is that she is doing and they are condemning the righteous. Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 12 verse 7. This was something that the Pharisees were experts at as well. Matthew 12, 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Here they're condemning the disciples who are innocent in the, what they are doing, yet they're condemning them based upon some false standard that they've created out of their own mind. Who says that it's better to give money to the poor than to give it to Christ? Where did they come up with this standard, with this determination? It's coming out of their own mind, right? And they're not thinking clearly and rightly in what they're doing. And it leads them to condemn the innocent on this false standard of righteousness that they are forcing upon her, right? They're expecting her to have their same mentality. And that is the basis of their condemnation of her. And that is not good at all. Okay, then... Verse 10, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. Here, Jesus comes to her defense. He comes to the aid and defense of the innocent, right? And isn't this what we've been studying? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And not only do we have an advocate with the Father, we also have an advocate against our accusers, right? And against those who would fault find and bring up these false accusations. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. And now here these men are joining in as an accuser of the brethren or of this sister. And Christ is the advocate who is defending her, who is saying, no, you're wrong. And she is right, right? What she is doing is good. Her motive is good, right? Why is she doing this? 
She's done a good deed to who? He says to me, right? Yeah. To Christ, to his person. How long is this going to be possible for someone to do a good deed to the very visible, physical Christ? Well, a couple of days, right? A couple of days, and he's going to die and be resurrected. Now, he'll be with them 40 days after that, but there's not much time for her to do something to the actual person of Christ before his death and resurrection. And her actions are approved by Christ. She is sincere in her love for him. She wants to honor him, and yet she's being criticized by the disciples. So, he says... Leave her alone. She wants to do a good deed for me. And then he says, You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. There is a place to give to the poor, but there's also a place to honor Christ. And what she's doing is good, right? It's not one or the other. There is a place for both of these types of things. And what she is doing should not be looked down upon because there is another option by which people may expend their money or their resources that is also good and justified in the sight of Christ. The poor, he says, you're always going to have. There's always opportunity to help and to give to the poor. Because as long as we are on this earth, there will always be poor people. This is the way it is going to be. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 tells us so. Deuteronomy 15:11 For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. The poor he says will never cease to be in the land. This is the way it has been from the beginning and it will be for all time and it is for our benefit, right? As a test so that we can show compassion to those who have legitimate needs. That's why God allowed, even in Israel, this very blessed nation, He even maintained the poor there in their land so that they would be a test to the rich to see whether or not they love God and they love their neighbor or whether they love their money more than God and their neighbor. So the poor are always going to be here. However, you will not always have me. Right? Not meaning spiritually. Spiritually and invisibly, we always have Christ with us. Christ is here with us right now. But is Christ here visibly and physically with us? Is it possible for us to pour 300 denarii worth of perfume on the head of Christ in our presence right now? No, we cannot do this. The best we can do is to do it to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But to do it to the actual person is not possible for us to do. And in their case... There are not many more opportunities for, de for them to show their love to the actual visible person of Christ when He is here in human flesh. Soon He will be gone. So the time to show these outward shows of love and devotion is now. So leave her alone. She's done a good thing. Verse 12, For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare for my burial. Here, a custom in the ancient world was to pour these perfumes on the bodies of those who were dead, those who were deceased. And this was a sign of their hope of eternal life, that God's goodness and the sweet 
savory aroma of the perfume would overcome the stench of death. And this is what God does in the gospel of Christ. Does he not overcome the stench of death, right? It overcomes it because of the gospel of Christ. And this was a way for them to show their honor, their love, their respect toward the one who had died by giving this last act of love to their body, but also of their hope of the future day of resurrection, that the body was not going to be burned, the body was not going to be thrown into the trash heap, but they were going to anoint it in this way to show their love for the body and their hope in the day of resurrection. And that what Christ will do would be able to overcome our resurrection so that in death, there's still this sweet, savory aroma, right? The aromas, they're associated with the nard and with the perfumes that they would pour there upon Christ. Well, is she going to be able to do this after the death? No, it's not going to be able to happen. In John 19, 38 to 42, we do have that Joseph and Nicodemus were able to do this, but it was not able to be done by the people at large, right? The burial of Christ was done in a very hasty, speedy way, in a private way, because of the upcoming Sabbath. It needed to be done that way. Then the intention of the followers of Christ was to go after the Sabbath and to do these types of acts of devotion for Him. However, they were prevented from doing that by His resurrection. They weren't able to do it. She's just getting a head start. That's what she's doing. She's jumping the gun and doing it actually before He dies in anticipation of what is going to happen. John 19, 38 to 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So they did it, but it was just them privately doing this. They prepared it in this way, but not, they were not able to have a proper burial funeral like you would do for someone that you loved, and especially someone as notable as the person of Christ. Then Luke 23, Luke 23, uh, 56. Twenty-three, actually, verse 54. says, It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. So here, these women, because the Sabbath day is approaching, it's the day of preparation, and their Sabbath begins at sundown, they were not able to go and do these things. So they saw where the body was laid. They went and prepared these things so that as soon as the Sabbath was over, on Sunday morning at early dawn, they could immediately go and do this honoring of Christ. And that's what they intended to do, right? They went to the tomb with the spices to honor Christ in this way. But then when they got there, 
He was gone. Right? He was gone. So she here, by a special movement of the Holy Spirit, is doing this in anticipation of his coming death and as a sign of her love and her devotion of Christ. Then verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Initially, she was criticized for what she did. But he says from now on, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, she will be remembered and she will be praised for what she has done. There will be a remembrance of this deed. And here we are 2,000 years later, and who are we talking about? We're talking about this very woman, and we're talking about what she did for Christ. And this is a testimony to us that the memory of the righteous will never be forsaken, that it will never be forgotten, that her person and what she has done will be remembered forever because heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And though our names are not recorded in Scripture and our deeds are not recorded in Scripture, yet who sees them and who will bring them to light? God made hers open and obvious to everyone and has inscripturated it so that we are now even talking about it here on the other side of the world 2,000 years later. But every deed that we do, every good deed that we do is recorded by God and it will be brought forward on the day of judgment. And there will be a remembrance of these types of things. Proverbs chapter 10, 10, 7. Proverbs chapter 10. Verse 7, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. The memory of the righteous is blessed. And here, this woman's memory is blessed, right? We're blessing her. We're praising her tonight, honoring her because of what she did for Christ. And that's good and right for us to do so, both with her, but also with those examples that God raises up in our midst as well, right? Even after they expire and are dead and gone from us, to remember them and have this memory of the righteous who were among us. Then, verse 14 to 16, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Christ. That is the other side of Proverbs 10.7, right? The memory of the wicked will rot. And here is a very wicked, evil man. One of the most notorious wicked people in the history of the world. Right? There is a reason why you do not find many people naming their children Judas Iscariot. Right? Just the same as you don't find many children named Hitler or Adolf over in Germany these days. Right? There are certain names attached with people in history that are so despicable deplorable that it becomes uh, known as this type of evil person. The same as we don't name our daughters Jezebel because of the attachment to that very wicked woman. Well, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, right? One of his 12 is the one who betrayed Christ. And notice he went to them. They didn't come to him and entice him to do this. He went to them seeking to do it. And why did he do it? For what reason? For filthy gain, for money, right? What will a man, get, a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, what did Judas give in exchange for his soul? 
he got 30 pieces of silver. And did he even get to enjoy that 30 pieces of silver? No. His conscience tormented him so much that he threw it back into the temple and then he went and hanged himself there and died a miserable death deserving of such a wicked man and then was cast into the lake of fire. He's one of the 12. Now notice here, it's one of the 12. It's not 11 of the 12 that betray Christ, but only one of the 12. One of them was a devil and he was so from the very beginning, right? Jesus knew who belonged to him and who did not belong to him. In John chapter 6, verses 70 to 71, John 6, verses 70 to 71, says, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus knew from the beginning that one of them was a devil. This did not go unnoticed by Christ. And yet Judas maintained his position there among them, maintained his profession temporarily, right, in these things for a short period of time. But eventually his true heart was revealed. And we know from what we read earlier in John chapter 12 that he was already a thief, right? He was stealing from the money box, stealing from Christ and the others and those who gave so generously. He had already been doing this. So it's not that he was a true believer and then became an unbeliever. From the very beginning, Jesus says he was a devil. From the beginning and then eventually his devilishness manifested itself in this greatest of sins in betraying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 15, what are you willing to give me to betray him? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. So he didn't listen to what Jesus taught in Luke 12, 15, where he said, be on guard against all covetousness. Be on guard, he says, against all covetousness, because one's life does not uh, consist in the abundance of his possessions. He wasn't listening there. And we know from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and that it is on account of love of money that many people pierce themselves with many a pain. Well, isn't that what Judas did? He pierced himself, right? He destroyed himself. And a root of his sin was his love for money. So we must be on guard. If love of money can lead one of the disciples to betray their master and Lord. After seeing all of the things that Jesus did, hearing all of his gracious words, then we must be on guard against this great temptation. And then from that point on, he begins looking for an opportunity to betray Christ. We'll, we'll see Peter's denial in the upcoming chapters. Peter's denial was spur of the moment, right? It happened in the heat of the moment that he denied Christ. It wasn't premeditated. Judas is, he went to them first, and now he's looking for an opportunity. He had every chance to repent and to say, I'm not going to do this, and to take the money back and to confess it to Christ, but he doesn't do that. He now is looking for an opportune time over the next several days to betray Christ to them. And ultimately, that is what will set the events in motion that lead to his crucifixion.